Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, head of this church. Amen. So having moved through the, what we call the Beatitudes, Jesus turns to his followers and says, you are the salt of the world. You are the light of the world. You are salt, you are light. I don't know if he was pointing to individuals or if he was just with a sweeping hand talking to all those who had hung around him, all those who were absorbing some of his teachings and his spirit, all those who, uh, who were consenting by their... Uh, by their bodies and by their, uh, by their following, that yes, we want to be like you, that we feel a connection to God that we hadn't felt before, that we are fulfilled in our lives and we think that we want to, um, to do this more with you. The disciples, the followers, uh, those who are on the way with Jesus, you are salt, you are light. Maybe even then they thought that was kind of curious because those are very common things, but maybe they knew that they were, they were Jewish, and they, they were Nazarenes, they were Galileans, they were kind of a group of people that uh, had followed him to that hillside. And, uh, and there were many things, but maybe not on that list was, I am salt and I am light. Uh, Jesus was saying something about what they all knew. Salt was savory, it was a preservative. Salt was valuable, it was used as, as money to pay for uh, the Roman soldiers. A little bag of salt, here are your wages for the last two weeks of, uh, of representing Rome in its provinces. And light, uh, they knew real well what light was. Maybe a little oil lamp with a, a flickering flame. Maybe not even as bright as the flames on our epiphany table here. But yet, dispelling the darkness in the darkness of their, of their, of their hobbles, their rude, rude homes, and in the darkness in their cities and uh, the valleys, especially maybe places where they would be traveling, where there might be robbers and thieves that would descend upon them. Light uh, could defend, light could illuminate, uh, light could uh, help them to find what they were looking for. Oh, light would help them to see. You are salt, you are light. And he expands on that. You heard that, that, uh, that the salt is to, is to preserve the world. The salt is to be savory. And if the salt has lost its, its saltiness, what good is it? It can just be thrown into the fire. It's not worth anything. Or light. What good is that light if you hide it under a bushel? But even a, saw, a, a light set on a, a hill of a city can be seen for great distances. It signals this, this is your destination. There is something here. There is something that can guide you. The poles of, of the understandings of that. He, he invited people to understand and then left them with that, that definition ringing in their minds and in their faith, you are salt, you are light. But then also we have this other teaching that, uh, uh, that seems to be unrelated to salt and light, but maybe it's not actually, because it talks about the, uh, the law and the prophets. 
we already understand that it was kind of a tension with Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, they were the, the keepers of the law. They were the ones that uh, studied. Those, they were the ones that argued and, and uh, taught, um, discussed among themselves the meanings, the interpretations of the law, the teachings of Moses, and all the traditions of Israel and uh, in, in, in Judaism that had grown up around the law. It was important. It was central to their faith. You needed to obey the law and even kind of an earlier understanding in Deuteronomy is if you obey the law, you will prosper. And uh, maybe that is still true as we realize that the law is giving for civility and, and honor and respect. It is given to preserve life and not to destroy life. And, and if you are living in that way, you will make better decisions and you will prosper. But in their interpretation of that, they had become fixated on, um, on the letter of the law, on every jot and tittle of the law, little marks that were in the, in the Hebrew writing. Now, there's no letters for the vowels, but there are little dots placed in, uh, in exact spots that indicate what the vowel uh, might be, might sound like. And to people that, that basically communicated with um, an oral language, uh, they, they were reminders rather than, than defining marks about what the word sounded like. And that's what Jesus is talking about when, when he says, I have, I have come uh, and I will, heaven and earth will not pass away until every letter, not one stroke of a letter shall pass from the law. He is honoring the law. Every bit of it, every, every iota of it that has, been, that has been passed down. But then he says this disturbing things at the end. Unless you are, your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. First of all, he sets them up as their peers. The scribes and the Pharisees, uh, they are the most learned people in our culture. They're the ones that spend their time on, at desks and looking through parchment. Now we spend our time um, toiling in the fields. We spend our time um, selling things. We spend our time taking care of our homes, raising our children. We don't do the things that they do. They are experts in the law. They know so much more than we do. And you are saying our righteousness to, needs to exceed theirs? It's a troubling statement as they compare themselves and as they realize they've been set up to be the peers of, of these followers that have accompanied Jesus to that hillside. Maybe Jesus said it to be a motivating thing. Uh, those are your models, and, uh, and if you want to be righteous, have a right relationship with God, uh, be more holy and, uh, and, and fulfill the law and God's commandments and be closer to God's own, own self, uh, to know more fully the acceptance of God, you need to be like that, a scribe and a Pharisee. Aspire to that. Set up a desk in your home and, uh, and invite some scribes and Pharisees over to your house and, and let them teach you, model, imitate what they do. Could be. 
could be it's time to think about some contemporary psychological studies that have indicated that, uh, that, that when someone is trying to learn something, uh, a skill or a practice, develop a, a, a natural gift, that someone who is uh, more accomplished um, can be a great help uh, to be a mentor, to be a teacher. But there's an interesting phenomenon about that. Psychologists have come to learn that, that if there is someone who is for, far sort superior, that um, is much more accomplished, that a person becomes despairing and gives up. There's no way that I can become like that person, that scribe, that Pharisee, a full expert. And so rather than motivating someone who wants to learn or, or, or be better in that direction, uh, people are prone to shrug and, and give up. It's too much, too much to, uh, to receive. It's too much to absorb. It's too big of a change. They cannot visualize that they would ever be like that. And for many there in that hillside, maybe they were like group number one, that, yeah, I can be more like the scribes and Pharisees. They can be my models of devotion, of worship, of how I spend my time, but, but maybe for most of them, they were far beyond the reach of what they could ever imagine. And that would be a discouraging word. That would be a word that would cause them to look down and, and sigh and say, well, well, maybe I'll go back to my village. Maybe I'll go back to my way of life. Maybe I'll go back to the way things were. This, this really is kind of out, of out of my reach. But really in the context of what Jesus is talking about, salt and light, and I know when you heard the text from Isaiah, you know that's the key to, uh, to the gospel that's coming up, and, and maybe that's ricocheting in your mind already, that that's really what Jesus had in mind. He's kind of dinging the scribes and the Pharisees. He's, he's saying that, uh, yeah, you are experts in the law, in the knowledge of the law, and in, in knowing the law, and um, in, in going back and forth about its meanings and everything. That's valuable, but but you have not fulfilled the law. You have not acted on what the law intended. You remember how Isaiah, Isaiah 58, some of those key verses there in the middle that, that Gene read for us. Day after day they seek me, the Lord says, and delight to know my ways, an oracle from God, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness. Back in Isaiah's day, on this hillside with Jesus, we think we are practicing righteousness. Scribes and Pharisees, oh yeah, we're practicing righteousness. Look at all the parchments we have, all the scrolls. Look at the big words we can use. Look at all the things we know. Yeah, we're practicing righteousness. They ask of me righteous deeds. They delight to draw near to God. But why do we fast? Do you not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Hmm. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight 
and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down like a head, like a bulrush, and lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day to the acceptable, to be acceptable to the Lord? Now, a fast is what Isaiah is talking about, an act of righteousness. It is a choice. It is withdrawing from food, probably, but also, also accompanied by a withdrawal from other things, too. Uh, a kind of chosen suffering that would heighten the awareness of, of one's spiritual nature. Maybe some of you, us, fast still occasionally as as a, an intensifying time of prayer or seeking, seeking the will of God. It is an ancient, timeless practice. But Isaiah is, is skewering the way that, uh, that their choice of that seems to be an end in itself. It doesn't seem to transform their choices about their behavior. And certainly it seems to not be affecting the way they treat one another, those close at hand with whom they live. Uh, and then you fast and you do something righteous, but you turn around and quarrel and fight with each other. Or, as is coming up, you fast, but then you do not care for those beyond your own family. Is not this fast that I choose to loose the bonds of injustice? Let me be direct with you. This is what I have in mind. This is fulfilling the law. This is the righteousness that I seek, the Lord God says. To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless Pour into your houses when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin. Ah, oh, here's light again. Then, then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call. Then you shall seek to know God. Then you shall long to be in his presence. Then, then you will practice righteousness, and the Lord will answer. He will respond, because that's what he had in mind in the first place. You shall cry for help, and he will say, here I am. All this text in Isaiah drives toward, toward that the details of of that intimate and um, powerful relationship with the Lord God Almighty. And yes, the law is a way to it, but the fulfilling of it is the practice of it. And the practice looks like salt, and it looks like light. Thanks be to God for the heritage that we have in the church, capital C, the church, when it has understood that, when it has acted and fulfilled the, the law, the gift of the teachings of God to Moses and Israel, but then gone beyond that and heard what Jesus is saying to fulfill the law and acted like salt and light. The image expands so quickly as we, 
as we look back in the history of the, the church, uh, just recently, Robert Louis Wilkins wrote a, wrote a book about the first thousand years of Christianity. And he wrote that, uh, uh, that in that era, the church was, was a body, a community that cared for one another, but, but they were distinctive influences in their cultures. For example, in the city of Rome, they were the ones that started what we would call hospitals. That before that, the, the sick in, in the city or those regions, um, if they were, were so ill and if they were not getting better, they might be brought to, to the temples of, of the different gods that, uh, that were scattered around, around the area. And then they would be left in those temples thinking that, that there would be something in the divine power in those temples where the God dwelled uh, that would heal them. Uh, churches, followers of Jesus, followers of the way, established other places, homes, areas of homes where, where the sick might be brought and where they would find doctors and healers to, to come and minister to them, where they themselves would, would care for the sick and the dying. In the larger culture, the, the dying especially were shunned. They, they would, would not be, be touched. They would be, be rejected. And, uh, uh, but in the Christian culture, the, the ones that, that cared for the dying within the church were esteemed, the grave diggers were esteemed because they were the ones who, who carried the, the final earthly remains of, of their sisters and brothers to their, to their next life, to their resurrection. They were the, the conveyors of, of new life, and they were the ones that celebrated. They were esteemed in the Christian community. It was totally different than in the pagan society. But yet the Christians acted in the larger culture to establish hospitals and to care for the sick and the dying. They were the ones who, uh, who, who gave clothes to, to those who, who were, were struggling, the beggars. They were the ones who, who, who brought food to the hungry. They were the ones who who did the things that Isaiah was talking about. And they did that because of, uh, of, of the light of Jesus who dwelled in them. They brought preservation to the culture. They brought, they brought a, a flavor to the culture that wasn't there before. And it was not the flavor of selfishness. It was not the flavor of competition. It was not the flavor of, of the rich, but it was a flavor of the community of life that God loved. And it came through their actions. It came through their reaching out of their selves. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, maybe you've heard his name, he uh, founded Facebook and has become kind of famous because of the of the proliferation of that social media and a pioneer in that area now and now in the news quite a bit understood that he uh, 
And somehow he invited himself uh, to, uh, to a ministerial association of a gathering of pastors that regular, rec, met regularly in uh, Waco, Texas. He was interested in, uh, in what they would talk about. He was interested in the, in the kind of uh, social interaction between the pastors of these churches. He invited him to come and welcomed him. And as he sat there and, uh, and listened in on their, on their meeting and their, their fellowship, talking about their own churches and talking about the needs in Waco, Texas, and, and talking about the things that they, they were doing and the things that, that needed to be done and what, what could they do. And then also as they prayed together and then as they, and as they ate together, uh, Mark Zuckerberg became more and more amazed Amazed at what he was witnessing, amazed at what he, what he's a part of, just by being in this cluster of pastors from all different denominations of churches, but all followers of Jesus, and what was happening. He said, "I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen this kind of a community. I, I didn't know that it existed." I didn't know that there would be such camaraderie, such community. You are in different churches, right? You're in different denominations, right? But yet there is no competition going on between you. You, you have a common concern, a heart for, for, the, for the well-being of Waco, Texas. And this goes beyond what we find in our, our city halls. And this goes beyond what, what our, our politicians talk about but have such difficulty following through on, you really do care and you follow through. He was amazed. And Mark Zuckerberg obviously had been not been raised in a church. Mark Zuckerberg is probably like millions of people that now have not been a part of the church. We live in a post-Christian era. And what was taken for granted, maybe a couple generations ago, no longer is. The people of our nation are more and more biblically illiterate, and more and more selfish, keeping to themselves. Yes, practicing some altruism, but, uh, but not, not joined in community, the communities that, that is offered around the reverence for God and Jesus' teachings and a searching and an encouragement to fulfill the teachings that we are given. For 54 years, the Covenant Church of Schaumburg has, has sought to be that way. Perfectly? No. No, we're all on the way. But in seeking to do that, we have found that we function best when we are salt and we are light. And we function best when we realize that the teaching of Jesus, when he says, you are salt and you are light, is, in the Greek, it's, it's plural. Uh, English doesn't have that, uh, that in our language, unless you uh, live, come from the south and then it's y'all. Uh, or if we're from the UP, then you go, use, use lived in the UP for some time, and that was a very common thing. The use, it meant uh, you, all of you in plural. 
Jesus was talking about the community. Y'all are salt. Y'all are light. Yes, you are. And when you live that out, when you, uh, when you see that, that that identifies who we are together, then Jesus truly is pleased. And, and we know that the kingdom of God is, is flickering, is, is happening, is moving in our midst, in us and through us. It works best when we care for one another. It works best when we practice the things here in our laboratory of the church so that it becomes second nature and, and who we are as we live in our world, in the culture, in our work, our schools, our, our neighborhoods through the week. And then the salt and the light can be, be scattered and spread and, and lit in a thousand places in our world. As we gather in the annual meeting in just a few moments, we'll have a chance to, uh, to look at some of the particular things, some of the ways that God has enabled us to be salt and light in this past year. In the midst of um, the challenges of our, of our culture, in the midst of the changes within our congregation, in the midst of the uh, opportunities that, uh, that come and go, all these things are, are not outside of the knowledge and also the, the, the blessing that God wants to extend to us as we seek to be salt and light to each other and to the world. So as we do that, let's, let's let these texts ring in our minds and in our hearts and our souls. helps us to, uh, to unite again to be the church followers of Jesus, uh, intimate related to those followers on that hillside with Jesus on that very day.